0: Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, my friends, when you last heard from me, as far as a full episode goes, it was Christmas with the CIA, so that's been a while now. We're ticking up on just about three weeks since that happened. And unfortunately, like I say, the world does tend to throw its curveballs from time to time, and Vi had to go into the hospital, uh, had a episode here at home. Now the positive news is that she's looking good, she's acting better than she has in a long time, seems to be getting her rest, and we're just waiting on a few bits and pieces of tests to hear from the doctors as far as what's the what's the long-term management for her condition. So that's good. I mean, look, that's a positive, and I'll definitely take that. But 2022 has already wound up and given me a full kick in the groin between that and something else that I just found out about a few days ago. I had the distinct pleasure of interviewing someone back in May of 2021, and as with several other shows, I just haven't got it edited and put out for you to listen to. But this person is a lovely lady named Susie Kerr-Wright. Now, if that name sounds familiar and you can't quite place it and you're thinking, JT, I know I've heard that name. Where have I seen it? Well, when I did a belated Christmas post and I said, basically, if you want to send last minute gifts, here are some of the people that you can support that have been guests on the show. I included Susie's website on there and a short blurb about her. Now, Susie was a psychic um medium. And she had some other ways to describe herself, but her handle was AstroGirl12 and AstroGirl12.com. And we, we sat down, and Susie is the one guest that I've ever had that went as long as I did on the program. So what I mean is, we talked for over five hours, and we just had an astounding conversation, which will be released. Again, I've just got to get it edited. Well, I'd signed up for Susie's horoscopes because I found them eerily accurate. And in fact, so accurate that I told a few other close friends, hey, you might want to check these out because it's been really accurate to me. And I'd given Susie feedback. Well, in dealing with Vi's stuff, um, once she was home, I was kind of looking through my emails and I had an email from the horoscope email and it said, please read. And I read this email and unfortunately, Susie had checked into hospital with some complications and never checked out. So it hit really close to me on a few levels. The first being that it was this lovely lady full of energy, full of life. And secondly, obviously, that Vi had just been in hospital and that Susie had passed away. And honestly, folks, it was one of those moments where I needed a chair and I just needed to sit down because it was just really shocking to me. So that episode will be coming out. In fact, it'll be a multiple parter, I'm sure. Because even if you say, let's take out um, an hour of editing, which probably won't be that much, then you're probably talking about at least two two-hour shows. Well, I just wanted to read you something from Susie's website. And this is from her husband, David. Now, I I, I haven't had the pleasure to talk to David or didn't get to know David. But the plan was, I mean, look, I really enjoyed Susie's, uh, the talk that we had, the conversation. Susie was a big Art Bell fan as well and we just really, it was one of those things where you sit down, you have a conversation with someone, and everything kind of clicks. You think very similarly, you see the world in a similar view, and I've got no problem with people with opposing views, but all I'm saying is, we've all had these conversations in life, so I want you to understand, you meet someone for the first time, you sit down, you have a conversation, and you're like, wow, that's a really astounding deep conversation. Well, the plan was definitely to have many more of these, Um and I'm really sorry that I didn't because, like I say, it was an astounding conversation, but I am very thankful that I got that time with Susie. So here's what David wrote about Susie, and it says, I just want to say to all of her friends that ever had a reading, listened to a podcast, took a class, or are simply fans of Susie, she absolutely loved you all. Susie made it her life's work to help people and give hope, comfort, and peace to anyone that needed it. Her smile was infectious and her laugh is still ringing through the walls of our house. She worked so hard at being better at her craft every day, always striving to be the best, most reliable and accurate at whatever she did, and presented with the most love she could. She took her world very seriously. Every one of you was important to her. She was a very powerful bright light in my life, and our marriage of twenty years was a total adventure that we were so fortunate to share. She was the perfect wife, friend, and partner for me and the void she leaves in my life is large. We were independent people but functioned as a single unit, each supporting the other in any direction we wanted to pursue. Our vow to each other was I love you no matter what. My wish for each and every one of you is that you will be enriched and your happiness will be abundant in every aspect of your life. Susie wanted to get the most out of life and pass all her knowledge, power, and love to anyone that is in need. Consider that You are the lucky ones and enjoy the benefits of her blessings. Fly high, my angel. Though your work on earth is done, I know you have much to do in your new universe. I love you no matter what. Now, folks, one of the things that Susie and I talked about was just what happens after death. What happens after we pass this mortal coil? And I know we talked about it. I'm not sure if it's on the recording or it was before we we started, but. We definitely talked about saying that once we go, we're going to get all the answers, right? So we're going to know what's beyond life and and everything else. So definitely now Susie will know those things. And honestly, folks, this one really hit hard because I've enjoyed every guest I've had on the show. Don't get me wrong. But it was just one of those things, like I say, where I sat down with Susie and we talked for five hours and, and... we could have talked for another five hours. I mean, it, it was that good of a conversation. And to see her leave her, her husband and her loved ones behind, it it is really hard on me um, to to know that she's passed away. Now, we're all going to pass away. And I get that. And I know that in my mind, and I say that to people every day. Our time, everyone's time is going to come, right? No, I'm under no illusions of that. But... There are just some people in this world that that you see leave that are such good people, um, and such positive people, and it rubs off on you. You hate to think of the world without them, and, and I guess that's what I really struggled with when I heard that Susie had passed away. So we're gonna do things a bit different tonight, folks. Um, like I say, I don't really have the episode edited or ready to go, but this is gonna be a fairly short episode, so we are gonna do some. News of the damn segments for you because, um, I, I want to get some stuff out there for you, but this is going to be a fairly short episode mainly because I want to get something out there for you and I want to have some new content out there for you. Um, and at the same time, just keep things ticking over. So this is going to be a bit of a bonus episode. We won't, we won't call this a full episode because I'm going to give you three or four articles and then I'm going to go back in the vault and get to work on the next stuff. But yeah, uh, I would be very amiss if I didn't mention the lovely Susie and the well wishes for Susie's husband and her friends and family. I'm, I'm very sorry that the world has, has lost Susie. And that's the honest truth from the bottom of my heart. So folks, uh, like I say, we'll do a few articles for you on this episode and then I'll go back to work and I'll start working on what's next. And like I say, I've got a list of several things to get released for you, but I honestly don't know what I'm going to do in what order. I really need to get on to the 2022 prediction stuff. I've got the episode with Timmy and Dave, and then I've got an episode I have yet to record where I've got to review last year's predictions. But one of the predictions I made on the episode with Timmy and Dave has already come true in 2022. And I basically said that 2021 was a very quiet year, Uh, when you look at it historically, for earth changes, meaning volcanoes, earthquakes, everything else. And I said, as much as I don't want it to be true, I could see much more upheaval in 2022 uh, versus 2021. And sure enough, here we've had this massive volcanic eruption in Tonga. And luckily for us, now unfortunately for Tonga, this has happened. At this point, there have been no deaths, which is really positive. Um, I'll touch wood and try and stay positive on this matter, but surely someone has passed away, because this is a pretty, pretty bad eruption, pretty catastrophic eruption. We're really lucky that it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean as well, because if this would have been on land, it would have been really bad. I mean, I don't know. They'll they'll make comparisons over the coming days. But looking at this eruption myself, from the footage I saw on the news, it reminded me very much of the eruption when I was a boy, Mount St. Helens. It was dark at, uh, in Tonga from the ash. So, yeah, it was like black, like pitch midnight in the daylight because of the ash, which is what happened with Mount St. Helens. It was very bad. There was a tsunami. Um, I don't know what it did in the Pacific because I haven't heard any reports of damage in places like Fiji and Samoa and Vanuatu and that. But it definitely reached here in New Zealand and damaged a lot of boats up north in a marina that seems to get every tsunami that comes to New Zealand. And I've been to that marina in Tutukaka. Um But anyway, um, unfortunately, I was correct on that. And I hope that I'm wrong for the rest of the year, to be brutally honest, because it's not something I want to see anyone dealing with is is stuff like this. Earthquakes and uh, volcanoes and, uh, yeah, uh, cyclones and all of it. Um, not something that's really great for people in general. So uh, yeah, I need to get those episodes out, and I already see that our friend that I commented on last year, the Grand Wizard or whatever from Mexico, is already making predictions about 2022, as I guess that's his job, right? So he's not going to stop just because he was wrong about the election um, or other things. So we'll, we'll just see. We'll see what the Grand Pooh Poobah has to say when we get around to him. So probably, folks, I will be working on those in the near future, and then I've got some recordings to do with uh, other people. (laughs) So sorry, folks, my thoughts are just a bit disjointed. So I've got some interview recordings to do, basically, and obviously I've got interview recordings to get edited and released. So we'll do our best here in Tower Studios to get back to a steady output of content. Now, for a while there, I was trying to get two shows out a week. I I don't know if I can do that, honestly, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to play catch-up, all right? So now, for those of you who may not know, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s in the U.S. named Charles Fort, and Charles Fort was interested in all of these things that you and I are interested in. Histories, mysteries, cryptids, and especially sea monsters, strange lights in the sky, strange objects falling from the sky, and so much more. Well, Charles Fort started gathering these stories at the time. There was no internet, obviously. So Charles Fort gathered these stories, and often they were just bylines, short paragraphs from magazines and newspapers from all over the world. And he gathered them on index cards, and he saved up 30, 40, 50,000 of them. And then Charles Fort took the time to write four books on these subjects and he wrote them in a very matter-of-fact way. Here is the story of someone seeing a sea monster. What do you think it could have been? I think maybe this is possible. What do you think? And the whole idea was, obviously, to get people like you and I to fire our collective thoughts and say, I wonder what it was, and I wonder how many more cases are there out there in the world like this? Well, Charles Fort referred to anything that was ignored or excluded by science. In other words, this is confusing, or we don't have an explanation, so we're just going to pretend that this didn't happen. So anything like that Charles Fort referred to as Damn Data. So anytime we do the news segment on the Paranormal Sun, it's always known as... The News of the Right, so we've got the first one here. The first article of the News of the Damned is one from Trey. So Trey, who's our chapter president in Oregon. Trey, I'm still trying to clear some of the ones that you sent me before the holidays, and with all the mayhem that's happened here in Tower Studios, I've still got a few. But I've got them saved in a Word document, and I'm slowly working through them. So don't think I've forgotten. I'm doing my best to sprinkle a few into each episode of the News of the Damned. So this one's from unexplainedmysteries.com. And this one says, Prankster Remy Galliard sparks UFO flap in France. And this was from November the 20th. So it says, A legendary YouTube prankster used a drone to produce fake UFO sightings, then dressed up as an alien. Galliard, who remains one of YouTube's most notorious pranksters, is certainly no stranger to controversy, having been apprehended by the police on multiple occasions due to his audacious stunts, which have included go-karting around town as Mario, dressing up as a speed camera, and sneaking into a Mr. Universe competition by pretending to be one of the contestants. His latest stunt, which produced a spate of UFO sightings in southern France, involved flying a drone equipped with a light around the area at the same time each night. He then dressed up as an alien and pulled a series of elaborate pranks involving a crashed UFO. These included calling a garage to pick up his broken-down flying saucer, being photographed filling his UFO with gas and being caught trying to hitchhike to Area 51 at an airport runway. In another scene, he held up queues of traffic while trying to abduct a cow in the middle of the road. As is often the case with Gayliard, some of these pranks will have likely put him at odds with local authorities, especially with the fire brigade being called out during the airport gag. So for those of you that don't know, in the U.S., the fire brigade that will be the fire department. Sightings of his fake drone UFO even made the local news on more than one occasion. And then you can check out the full video below, it says. So, as always, folks, I've always got a link in the show notes to each one of the articles of News of the Damned that I cover. So, yeah, interesting one here. I'm always divided when it comes to things like this, and and I'll tell you why. You might think I've got a problem with someone making fun of ufos and that but i I really don't as long as it's done in, the, in a matter like this where he's not really presenting it as a fact that these are ufos and he's not trying that i gotcha he's poking fun at ufos which i really have no problem with my issue is more with people who fake or uh, where they try and say this is an authentic ufo case and then they fake it to basically say aha i caught you and anyone who believes in any of this is obviously deluded because they fell from IBS those are the ones that I've got more of a problem with the the much more gotcha type moments things like this hey UFOs for whether you like it or you don't like it UFOs are a part of the societal fabric of the world now i mean there's not much that you can't find UFOs involved in from tv shows making fun of it to oh what did you see a UFO or were you abducted to the news covering it to all kinds of bands doing songs about ufos and uh, i mean it's basically become ubiquitous in almost every society around the world so there's always going to be someone out there who's going to poke a bit of fun at it and as far as i'm concerned it's publicity and it gets people thinking about it and with 2021 and all that happened in 2021 as far as people just being more involved being more conscious about ufos and what's going on and in particular what the U.S. government may know or may be investigating around UFOs, yeah, uh, like I say, uh, I've really got no issue with it. My only issue is if you try and present it as this is a real UFO, and then it's not, and then it ends up being, aha, I caught you, I I, I caught you believing in something and it was all fake, so that means every UFO sighting ever in the history of humanity is fake. So uh, I've really got no issue with that, and thanks for sending that through, Trey. And that name did sound familiar. And then as I was reading it, that speed camera one is an absolute classic, folks. It's pretty funny. He basically stands on the side of the road. And when a car drives by fast, he like, I'm assuming he flashes a camera, flashes his phone, and it looks like a speed camera going off. And then he starts to walk away and the car comes driving back. It's pretty funny. But anyway, folks, so, so there's the first article of the News of the Damned. And again, if you want to read that yourself or see the video, check out the link in the show notes. So the next one here is about the volcanic eruption in Tonga. So for those of you in the U.S. that don't know a lot about the Pacific, the way that we see the Pacific here in New Zealand and Australia is that it's very similar to how in the U.S. we used to look at the Caribbean and Central and South America. It's basically our backyard. So nearly everyone here in New Zealand and Australia would have known or met someone from these different countries like Tonga and Samoa and Vanuatu and Fiji and elsewhere, uh, Cook Islands, Nauru, uh, all of these different countries. So it for us, what I'm saying for us, it's not just some country in the middle of nowhere. Uh, as soon as I heard about this eruption, I thought of people that I know that are from Tonga. And then also, of course, because I had mentioned that on the show with Dave and Timmy, um, it was very front of mind, kind of keeping an eye out for natural disasters going on. So this one is from the Indian Express, which is obviously an Indian website, and it says, explained why the volcanic eruption in Tonga was so violent and what to expect next. The Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcano has erupted regularly over the past few decades. During events in 2009 and 2014-2015, jets of hot magma and steam exploded through the waves, but these eruptions were small, dwarfed in scale by the January 2020 events. And then it's got a satellite photo of this ash spread, which is pretty, pretty intense when you look at it. And it's written by Shane Cronin, professor of earth sciences, University of Auckland. Well, what do you know? So even though we've got the Indian Express, they're using one of our scientists here in New Zealand. So the Kingdom of Tonga doesn't often attract global attention, but a violent eruption of an underwater volcano on January the 15th has spread shockwaves, quite literally, around half the world. The volcano is usually not much to look at. It consists of two small, uninhabited islands, Hunga Ha'pai and Hunga Tonga, poking about 100 meters above sea level, 65 kilometers north of Tonga's capital, Nuku'alofa, after hiding below the waves is a sorry but hiding below the waves is a massive volcano around 1800 meters high and 20 kilometers wide so that's about 12 and a half miles the hunga tonga hunga hapai volcano has erupted regularly over the past few decades during the events in 2009 and 2014-15 hot jets of magma and steam exploded through the waves but these eruptions were small dwarfed in scale by the January 2022 event. Our research into these earlier eruptions suggests that this is one of the massive explosions the volcano is capable of producing roughly every 1,000 years. Why are the volcano's eruptions so highly explosive, given that seawater should cool the magma down? If magma magma rises into seawater slowly, even at temperatures of above 1,200 degrees Celsius, A thin film of steam forms between the magma and the water. This provides a layer of insulation to allow the outer surface of the magma to cool. But this process doesn't work when magma is blasted out of the ground full of volcanic gas. When magma enters the water rapidly, any steam layers are quickly disrupted, bringing hot magma in direct contact with cold water. Volcano researchers call this fuel-coolant interaction, and it is akin to weapons-grade chemical explosions. Extremely violent blasts tear the magma apart. A chain reaction begins with new magma fragments exposing fresh, hot interior surfaces to water, and the explosions repeat, ultimately jetting out volcanic particles and causing blasts with supersonic speeds. Two Scales of Hunga Eruptions The 2014-2015 eruption created a volcanic cone, joining the two old Hunga Islands to create a combined island about 5 kilometers long. That's about, I want to say, about three miles long, roughly. We visited in 2016 and discovered these historical eruptions were merely curtain raisers to the main event. Mapping the seafloor, we discovered a hidden caldera 150 meters below the waves. The caldera is a crater-like depression around five kilometers across. Small eruptions, such as in 2009 and 2014-15, occur mainly at the edge of the caldera but very big ones come from the caldera itself. These big eruptions are so large, the top of the erupting magma collapses inward, deepening the caldera. Looking at the chemistry of past eruptions, we now think the small eruptions represent the magma system slowly recharging itself to prepare for a bigger event. We found evidence of two huge past eruptions from the Hunga caldera in deposits on the old islands. We matched these chemically to volcanic ash deposits on the largest inhabited island of Tongatapu, 65-kilometer radiocarbon dates, to show that big caldera eruptions occur about every 1,000 years, and the last one was at AD 1100. With this knowledge, the eruption on January 15th seems to be right on schedule for a big one, what we can expect to happen now. We're still in the middle of this major eruptive sequence, and many aspects remain unclear, partly because the island is currently obscured by ash clouds. The two earlier eruptions on December twentieth, 2021 and January thirteenth, 2022 were of moderate size. They produced clouds of up to 17 kilometers elevation and added new land to the 2014-2015 combined island. The latest eruption has stepped up the scale in terms of violence. The ash plume is already about 20 kilometers high. Most remarkably, it spread out almost concentrically over a distance of about 130 kilometers from the volcano creating a plume with a 260-kilometer diameter before it was distorted by the wind. And I can't speak for everyone around the world, but here in New Zealand, they've shown the satellite image on the news several times. And yeah, when you see it on that satellite image, it's pretty pretty impressive. And I don't mean in a good way. This demonstrates a huge explosive power, one that cannot be explained by magma-water interaction alone. It shows instead that large amounts of fresh, gas-charged magma have erupted from the caldera. The eruption also produced a tsunami throughout Tonga and neighboring Fiji and Samoa. Shockwaves traversed many thousands of kilometers were seen from space and recorded in New Zealand some 2,000 kilometers away. Bingo! Soon after the eruption started, the sky was blocked out on Tongatapu, with ash beginning to fall. All these signs suggested that the large Honga caldera was awoken. Tsunamis are gener- are generated by coupled atmospheric and ocean shock waves during an explosion, but they also rapidly co- they are also readily caused by submarine landslides and caldera collapses. Yep that's what happened with the infamous boxing day tsunami I want to say in two thousand five It remains unclear if this is the climax of the eruption. It represents a major magma pressure release which may settle the system. A warning, however, lies in geological deposits from the volcano's previous eruptions. These complex sequences show each of the 1,000-year major caldera eruption episodes involve many separate explosion events. Hence, we could be in for several weeks or even years of major volcanic arrest from the Hunga Tonga-Hunga-Hapai volcano. For the sake of the people of Tonga, I hope not. And so do I. Now, folks, since I started recording this episode to now, it's been a few days, So now, as of now, well, as of last night when I watched the news, the death toll was up to three. Now, you might look at an event like this and say, Well, how can it only be three? Well thank goodness those islands are some of the lesser populated ones in the in the in Tonga. So a lot of Pacific nations are not just one island. They're multiple islands, even if there's a large island and smaller islands. So for example, for those of you who are wrestling fans, you would have heard for years and years and years from the Isle of Samoa. Well, that's not right, because Samoa is a nation. Western Samoa, as opposed to American Samoa, Western Samoa is two larger islands, Savai and uh, Upolu, and then you have some smaller islands. And even in New Zealand, people think of us as two islands, but we're actually hundreds of islands. We just have two large islands, and we have several other Still significantly large islands with a decent population on them. It's just they're not... When you look at the map, people always go, oh, North Island, South Island. But we have Stewart Island. We have the Chatham Islands. We have all of the islands in the Auckland Harbor, like uh, Rangitoto. And although I don't think anyone lives on Rangitoto because that's a volcanic cone, but uh, Waiheke Island, for example. And then in the Hauraki Gulf, we have many islands. in the Bay of Islands, ironically, Bay of Islands. I think it's got about 140 islands. So what I'm getting at is, even even here in New Zealand, when people hear Tonga, they think of the main island, but it's actually a chain of many many islands. Same with Fiji. Same with the Cook Islands. Same with Vanuatu. So they're very fortunate that that volcano was not on the main island, and the eruption is of course still catastrophic. It's going to affect a lot of people's lives. And I'm sure the death toll will go up, but what I'm saying is it shouldn't be in the hundreds or thousands. It's more of a financial impact and a impact on people's livelihood. I mean, a lot of people can't drink water there. They they won't be able to grow crops for a significant amount of time. It's a big impact. And the same thing happened with Mount St. Helens. The fortunate thing with Mount St. Helens was Mount St. Helens is just one small area in the massive entity that is the United States. Therefore, you could very quickly bring aid in from outside. But when you're in the middle of the Pacific on these islands, and even the large, larger, more settled island is not a superpower type or first world status island, it's not that easy. And this is why when we talk about mega events like IE, people talk about the, the um, Yellowstone caldera going up in smoke one day, If something like that ever happens, it's really going to stretch the resources of the United States to the brink because it will affect such a large area of the country. It will be very difficult to fix it in the short term. And what I mean by that is you look at something like Hurricane Katrina, it affected a very small region of the US. So you can bring in stuff from outside. But if you've got most of the Western US, for example, under ash clouds and continuing threat of volcanoes and everything else, yeah, it's going to be a lot different game. So let's hope that in our lifetime, and our children's lifetime, and our grandchildren's lifetime, that that never happens. Because if it does, yeah, it'll be pretty significant. And it will make things like, and I'm not saying they aren't important, but it will make things like COVID and the climate change and that look like nothing in comparison. In fact, they scientists believe that there was an eruption event in Indonesia, I want to say around 200,000 years ago, that basically bottlenecked our entire species to the fact that basically they can track our DNA back to that choke point in history where there were maybe a few, maybe at most a few hundred thousand humans on the entire planet because it killed that many of us off with this huge ash cloud and blocking out the sun and everything else. So yeah, I digress, uh but it is very serious and to anyone who is of Tongan extraction or if you have friends or loved ones there or you've just holidayed there or you know some lovely Tongan people like we do here in New Zealand. All the best to Tonga and I just hope that you come out of this as positively and with as little damage to your country as there can be. So again, folks, as always with all of these episodes, there's a link to that article in the show notes if you'd like to check out more. So the next one here is an interesting little one. And of course, as soon as I start reading this, you'll realize why I couldn't let it go past me without covering it. So this one is titled, it is from getpocket.com. I know, but I get my news everywhere. What I'm saying is probably never heard of that website. I hadn't but i saw the article pop up in my newsfeed and i was like got to cover that so this one says did a viking woman named gudrid really travel to north america in 1000 ad and this is from pocket.com but it's originally from the smithsonian magazine the sagas suggest she settled in newfoundland and eventually made eight crossings of the north atlantic sea so was her name gudrid columbus What I'm getting at, folks, is, again, we just keep turning back the clock on a lot of things that we were told as kids. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And everyone back then thought the world was flat when in reality, in reality versus what we were taught, almost anyone with an educated mind in Europe realized that the world was not flat at that time. Or, and again, I'm not attacking anyone who might be a flat earth believer, but I'm just saying, The general consensus of the world being round. Everyone back at that time, the educated people, believed the world was round, not flat. And we were taught in school that Columbus proved the world was round. And Columbus was out on a limb by thinking the world was round. But like I say, European scholars didn't think it was flat. Okay, so got a beautiful photo of a Viking longship here, which is pretty cool to see. So it says, more than a thousand years ago, a woman named Gudrid sailed off the edge of the map with her husband and a small crew, landing in what the Vikings called Vinland, and what is now Canada. She lived in and explored Newfoundland and the surrounding environs, uh, sorry, environs for three years, bearing a son before returning home to Iceland. Ultimately, she made eight crossings of the North Atlantic Sea and traveled farther than any Viking that we know of from North America to Scandinavia to Rome, or so the Viking sagas claim. But did Gudrid, oh boy, I'm going to struggle with that name, beyond Dodier, the far traveler, really exist? And if so, did she really set foot in the Americas 500 years before Christopher Columbus? Definitive answers to these questions will remain out of reach unless physical evidence or more reliable documentation emerges. Highly unlikely scenarios still says nancy marie brown author of the 2007 biography the far traveler voyages of a viking woman gudrid's story suggests that viking women were as courageous and as and as adventurous as viking men and that there were far fewer limitations on the life of a woman in those times than we may think what the sagas say about gudrid Goodread. gudrid's name appears in two viking sagas specifically the saga of the greenlanders and the saga of eric the red known collectively as the Vinland Sagas. Yeah, and I remember doing my best to study those when I was young, but it was hard to get your hands on the actual text. You more got people's interpretations of what they said. Her story differs slightly between the two accounts. In Greenlanders, Gudrid is poor and ends up shipwrecked on her way to Greenland. In Eric the Red, she's wealthy and survives a harsh Greenland winter before traveling to Vinland. Each saga is like a giant, centuries-old game of telephone. Sometimes it's a harsh winter. Sometimes it's a shipwreck. But regardless of which saga one reads, certain elements of Gudrid's story remain the same. In both chronicles, Gudrid is born in Iceland sometime in the late 10th century. When she's around 15 years old, she travels with her father, Th- Thornbjorn, to Greenland, where Thornbjorn's troublemaking friend Eric is busy setting up a new Viking settlement. While there, Gudrid marries Eric's younger son, Thornstein. You might you might know Thornstein's older brother, Leif Erikson, as the first European to set foot in North America. That we know of. You gotta love me, folks. I'll always tell you what I think. Without giving the game away. Following in Leif's footsteps, Thornstein also set sail for this strange new world, perhaps with his young bride in tow, if Greenlanders is to be believed. In both sagas, Thornstein fails to make it to Vinland, literally wineland, The Vikings' name for the evergreen peninsulas they encountered in North America. He and Gudrid, if she was indeed with him, managed to return to Greenland just before winter sets in. That winter is a harsh one, and one by one the people around Gudrid start dying. Thornstein is among the deceased, but his ghost, one of many to visit the living in both sagas, lingers long enough to suggest that her destiny will be a great one. Now widowed, she returns to the main Greenland settlement. As a 17 year old widow, gudrid's gudrid couldn't or sorry gudrid could have chosen where to live and whom if anyone she would wed next both sagas report that she decides to marry the icelandic merchant thorfinn Karlsfinni Car- carls yeah whose nickname means the makings of a man gudrid sails to the new world with thorfinn there they have a son snorri and after three years sail back home Though one saga has the young family taking a detour to Norway, both accounts ultimately find Gudrid back in Iceland at a farm called Glomber. It's only in Greenlanders that we hear what happened to Gudrid next. Now a much older woman, somewhere in her 40s or 50s, she embarks on a pilgrimage to Rome, making the journey almost entirely on foot before returning to her farm to live out her days as a nun and a recluse. Scholars aren't entirely sure what being a Viking nun looked like in the early 11th century, as Brown points out in her biography of Gudrid, The Gudrid Goodr- the presented in both sagas is dignified and sensible. In Eric, she's the fairest of women, and has a lovely singing voice. In Greenlanders, she's described as knowing well how to carry herself among strangers, a reference to a later scene in which she speaks to an indigenous North American woman. Can the sagas be trusted? Can contemporary observers trust the sagas? These accounts after all include ghosts, dragons, witches, and all sorts of clearly fictional events. Okay. Yeah, ghosts, dragons, witches. I'd pause it to say that two out of three of those in my mind are not clearly fictional, and the third one, again, could have a still have a clear footing in fact, which is dragons, so but I digress. It is the Smithsonian, my friends. But historians also know that the sagas contain the names of real people, including Viking kings and queens. They tell of real battles, real settlements, and real cities. As scholar Lars Lonnreth writes, the sagas all claim to present some kind of truth, though the truth has to be parsed out from the tales of trolls. In The Far Traveler, Brown points out that asking not, are the sagas true, but are they plausible, is a far better barometer for testing the story's veracity. Both Greenlanders and Eric the Red were passed down orally for more than 200 years until finally being written out sometime in the 13th century. Makes sense. Audiences familiar with saga characters like Gudrid would have called storytellers out if they took too many liberties. Imagine it as a form of communal fact-checking. It's kind of like us telling stories about George Washington, Brown says. There's only so much you can make up. Did he cut down the cherry tree? Well, okay. We'll give you that because we all heard it when we were kids. Did he cross the Delaware River? Yes, probably. There was a shared common knowledge of the saga characters, and you can only create so much within that frame. While some of Gudrid's story handed down in the sagas might be apocryphal, like her husband's ghost coming back for a chat, Brown and other scholars argue that portions of the narrative are based on on actual events. And again, I get that someone like me is never going to have a job at the Smithsonian, but I think it's plausible that her husband's ghost came back for a chat. Archaeology can often verify saga events. When archaeologists pay attention to the sagas and actually go looking for stuff where the sagas say they should look, Brown says, they have often found what they're looking for. In Gudrid's case, archaeologists have excavated the Glembauer Turf House, described in the sagas as her final home in Iceland. The structure is unlike any other Viking-age turf home in Iceland. Most resembling one built hundreds of miles away in a North American Viking settlement. The very settlement Gudrid and her husband, supposedly built on the tip of a Newfoundland peninsula. I'm trying to remember what it is, but I'm sure they'll tell us here. Yet yeah. The only known Viking settlement in North America Lance Lance Os Ox, 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 Meadows, trying to remember how to pronounce it right and any French speakers out there, please, I do apologize, is located in the north northernmost part of Newfoundland. A windy spot, the settlement was likely meant to act as a staging area for exploration further south. Carbon dating has placed its creation around 1000 AD, give or take 20 years, which lines up when with when Leif Erikson and later Gudrid would have visited the New World. Archaeologists uncovered three turf dwellings, a forge, and four workshops at the meadows. Nails and wood shavings found scattered on the floor of the workshop is indicated is sorry, indicate that Viking settlers repaired boats there hundreds of years ago. And while surveying these same structures in 1975, archaeologist Birgitta Wallace's team found proof of at least one Viking woman lived in Newfoundland nearly a thousand years ago. Okay, so this does go on a bit, so I'm not gonna read all of it. But yeah, very interesting. And again, I get that I am not a mainstream writer for whatever publication, the New York Times, the Smithsonian Magazine, whatever you get. But I find all of this completely plausible. I would also argue this is now this J.T.'s this is this is for free, all right, folks. I'm giving you this for free. This is J.T.'s personal opinion. I have no doubt in my mind that the Vikings got much further south than Newfoundland and much further south than Canada. I've got no doubt in my mind that the Vikings explored parts of the northeastern U.S. and maybe further afield, places like potentially the Kensington-Runestone area in Minnesota. But I've got no doubt in my mind that they were in places like Massachusetts and Rhode Island and um, maybe even into like Delaware and Virginia. Again, that's my personal opinion, all right? And there'll always be people that are lining up to take pot shots at you when you say something like that. But for JT, I've seen enough evidence of strange things in the area, i.e. Viking coins, petroglyphs, things like this. And also, again, not to beat the drum to death, but the same scientists who say if you say that something wasn't built by a group of people who were there before Europeans, you're racist because you're saying you're taking that achievement away from them. But at the same time, they refuse to listen to the narrative. And I got news for you. American Indians, and just for the record, folks, American Indians prefer to be called American Indians, no matter what anyone who wants to be PC will tell you. If if you've ever met or you know an American Indian, and being a quarter, I do, American Indians prefer being called American Indians because That's what Europeans called them for hundreds of years. And then all of a sudden, it's like, instead of worrying about the impoverished life that you all have on the reservations and being huddled onto these little blocks of land that in many cases mean nothing to you as a group, historically, it's just been convenient for the government to shove you onto that land, rather than worrying about that and the systemic poverty and all the issues you have. Let's let's worry about something really important like renaming a football team or calling you indigenous versus an American Indian. They don't care. And like I say, most American Indians would prefer you just call them, if you don't know the tribe, so if you don't know if they're a Ute or an Apache or a Blackfoot or a Crow or a Navajo, if you don't know that, at least call them an American Indian. All right, They don't actually prefer the term Native American and they sure don't prefer the term indigenous, all right, American Indian. But again, that's just my thoughts. And again, folks, if it offends you, sorry, but ask your local Native American, American Indian, indigenous person how they feel. I can't speak for the Canadian tribes, but I can speak by and large for the majority of tribes in the United States from the United States. Anyway, in their own oral traditions... They said white men came from over the sea. And they came here, and they interacted with us, and they traded with us, and at times they settled amongst us. Oh, but that's all thats all myth, okay? See what I'm saying? This is what gets me so upset about mainstream archaeology and the like. They pick and choose what they want. And look, so, so before this uh, site in Canada was confirmed, they said oh the vikings never made it to canada they never made it to north america even when i was a boy in school even though this site had been explored and it was being excavated by archaeologists it had not they had never definitively said oh this is a viking settlement so even when i was still a boy they said oh maybe vikings were in canada now we know for a fact they were okay and as far as i'm concerned i know they were in the united states proper Maine, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, etc. But again, that's my personal opinion. And I don't think it's very far to go out on a limb. I'm not saying they were in Los Angeles. I'm saying these were some of the best navigators in the world at the time. There was nothing stopping them from going from Newfoundland to uh to the American Northeast, right? It's not like I'm saying they discovered Florida, all right? So it's not really that Crazy when you think about it, my friends. It's just like for years and years and years in the Pacific, Western mainstream archaeology just didn't understand how good of the navigators the Pacifica people as a whole were. And when I say the Pacifica people, everyone from the Maori here in New Zealand to the Samoans to the Tongans to the Hawaiians to the Tahitians to the people from the Marquesas all the people in the pacific how interconnected everything was and more and more and more when you listen to people like scott walter and i know for some people he's not your cup of tea and that's fine but a lot of these people have pointed out and as far as i'm concerned rightfully so we need to stop thinking of oceans as barriers and start looking at them as highways because think about it what's harder you think you think you think about any movie or tv show or story you remember from history of explorers, what would you rather do? March through like dense jungles and forests and all that and maybe move a few miles a day? Or go in the river where you can just sail and everything's so much easier? So don't you think that our ancestors did the same in the ocean? To me, it's a no-brainer, right? And this whole thought that all of our ancestors, be they European or, or Asian or Pacific Islander or anything African, to think that they were scared and huddled close to shore so we can see shore because we're so scared. It's all BS, right? I mean, we know now as time goes on that people were exploring the world thousands of years ago and they weren't huddled up against the shore. I'm scared. I'm scared of the Big Bad Sea. Yes, of course, there are things out there that will terrify you, even today. Rogue waves. <laughs> ships disappearing out of nowhere um all kinds of things right potential cryptids out there in the water i'm not saying there aren't things to be scared of but what i'm saying is that if you think that all of our ancestors were cowards and busy huddled on the shore and only wading out up to their waist in the water nah sorry they were much braver than the general person in today's world and they did all kinds of things for the propagation of the human species to make sure that we went forth and multiplied. Because if they didn't, we never would have left Africa, okay? If you believe the mainstream narrative that all all human life came from Africa, they never would have left Africa, right? Because they would have been too scared. Oh no, there's an ocean. Oh no, there's a mountain range. What's on the other side of the mountain range? Humans are curious by nature. Why would we want to explore the other planets if we had it in our DNA to be cowards. So why do we think our ancestors were too scared of the ocean to go out in it? They weren't. That's the answer. The answer is they were not. The Carthaginians and the Canaanites and trying to think of the other group, um, the Phoenicians, we now know that 3,000 years ago, they were out sailing in the Atlantic. And guess what? They weren't they, they weren't huddled up going, oh, we can't see the shore. we got to go back. We've got, like, as a collective species thing, we got to get out of this hole. Oh, our, our, our ancestors didn't explore because they were scared of everything. They were scared of anything past the cooking fire. Nah, it's not human nature. Human nature is to explore. You look at, for example, you watch those um, shows like, and I get they're contrived for TV, a lot of them. But you look at shows like Naked and Afraid. Once people sort their basic needs, shelter, food, fire, what do they do? They start exploring their surroundings. It's in our human DNA makeup nature to explore. We've always been a race of of, of explorers. Or sorry, not race, uh, species. Again, I'm not the only one that feels that way, but, but if you don't agree, that's fine. But I'm just saying, I think I've always been a big proponent of this. I think that as time goes on, and unfortunately, we won't get most of the answers before I pass away, but I'm sure that they're going to just continue to wind the clock back on a lot of these things. And one day it will be common knowledge that Europeans were in North America over a thousand years ago, maybe two thousand years ago, maybe longer. I just think that clock's just going to keep getting wound back. Do I know who's got it at bay? Do I think that it's the Illuminati behind it all that don't want to admit it? No. I just think it's academia. And when you've got people who spend 30 years studying a subject and say, I'm the definitive expert on this, and no European set foot in the boundaries of the United States until X year, you've got a vested interest in making sure that that narrative stays the same. And people in your field that are scared of you, because look at Egyptology and look at how Zahi Hawass controlled the narrative in Egypt for 30, 40 years of this is what happened this was the timeline this is who what built what and once he left although yeah i'm not saying there's been massive changes but the people there have been much more open in saying hey maybe things happened earlier or maybe there were other groups involved that we didn't know about be they from sub-saharan africa be they from the mediterranean etc but when you control the narrative up until then it's just like the party line think of communist Russia, communist USSR, when Stalin was in charge, and when Lenin was in charge, there was a party line. Step outside of the party line. Now with them, you'd go to the gulag or get executed. But in academia, you'll lose your accreditation, they'll ridicule you in public, and you'll basically lose your livelihood and your career. And remembering, folks, many of the people in those fields, they're not just doing it for the money, but because they enjoy it, and they love doing what they're doing. And who wants to have your Dream gig sabotaged because you said something that upset the apple cart. There are people like me who don't care, but again, I don't make my living following mainstream academia, so completely different thing. Okay, so so, sorry about that diatribe, folks. It's hilarious, right, because I thought this will be a shorter kind of bonus episode, and here, because of my tangents, we're going to be just as long as a normal seven or eight or nine uh, article episode of the News of the Damned but um it's been a long time and i miss talking to you so sorry not sorry as the saying goes right you so we've got two more and these are fairly short now the first one is from coast to coast AM.com, and this came out january 14th and i'm going to read it to you and then i'll watch it and give you my unbiased opinion so this is watch eerie fleet of ufo's filmed in illinois now again Having spent several of my formative years in Illinois, I couldn't go past this article. So the YouTube video, just so you know, it's titled UFO Fleet over Beach Park, Illinois, November 26, 2021, UFO Sighting News. I don't know where Beach Park is, but I'm assuming it's up by Lake Michigan because <laughs> there's not a lot of, there are lakes all over Illinois, but I can't think of anywhere na- named with the name Beach in it that wouldn't be along Lake Michigan. A peculiar piece of footage circulating online shows several mysterious orbs floating through the night sky in Illinois, and some suspect that the odd glowing objects could be alien in nature. The intriguing sighting was reportedly... Sorry. So, it's just their typo. The intriguing sighting reportedly occurred, so it says was reportedly occurred, (laughs) in late November in the community of Beach Park, but was only reported to the research organization MUFON this past week. According to the unnamed witness, the curious objects appeared to be flying in formation towards Lake Michigan, so I was right, folks, and vanished in mid-air. Fortunately, despite being bewildered by what they were seeing, the observer managed to capture the remarkable sighting on film. The puzzling video begins with a trio of lights first appearing in the sky, and the initial thought it is that perhaps it is a triangular UFO. However, the scene gets even stranger when the amazed witness Notices that they describe as what they describe as a flotilla of five additional glowing orbs suddenly appearing on the horizon. To their credit, the person behind the camera does an admirable job of trying to follow the lights, though the anomalous objects largely remain indecipherable despite the individual's best effort to hunt the UFOs. As for what the odd objects might have been, some imaginative UFO enthusiasts have suggested that the orbs were a fleet of alien craft. En route to a long rumored secret ET base hidden beneath the surface of Lake Michigan. Most skeptical minded observers have offered a more down to earth suggestion, such as drones or lanterns. The latter explanation seems to make the most sense, given the way that the orbs floated in an almost listless fashion before finally vanishing from sight. That said, what exactly the witness saw remains a mystery. Okay, folks, so I'm just gonna click play on this. It's a three-minute video, so we're not going to watch the whole three minutes. So it's a triangular formation, slightly askew. And the commentary is in Spanish, just so you know. So early on, anyway, in this video, it, the, the lights are keeping equidistant. Well, sorry, that's that's not actually... What I'm what I'm saying is they're keeping the same distance they are at the beginning. They're not equidistant to begin with. Yeah, okay, so I see what he's saying. So you see the triangle here, and then you see several lights coming from this direction. And for argument's sake, just so you know, in the video footage you can see in his windscreen in or windshield, lights of cars driving down the road at the top and they look nothing like this. So what I'm saying is, if someone comes along and tries to say, these are headlights of cars, nah, because you can see the headlights of cars separately. So he's saying there's three there, There's there was five there, now there's four. They are staying fairly the same distance, but lanterns, I would argue, I'd say if I'm just giving a very top-level explanation, this is what I would expect of something like a Chinese lantern. They're moving fairly slowly, fairly lazily across the sky, and they the, the formation does start to distort, okay? So I could see it being lanterns without digging into it much deeper. That's my thoughts on it anyway. And again, it's easy when they've said, here's what people are saying, and then you look at it and you say, oh yeah, it could be that. <laughs> I get that. It's not my original idea, but interesting nonetheless. So again, if you want to see that video, follow the the link in the show notes. And Tim Bernal over at Coast to Coast is always very good at embedding the videos in the kind of news summaries over there at Coast to Coast. It's one of the reasons why I like it so much. You don't have to follow a link to another page. Right, and especially when you're recording like this, it's just so much easier if you got the video embedded in the page. Now, if you're a long-term listener to the show, you'll know that I've got a big place in my uh, enjoyment part of my brain for HP Lovecraft. So I couldn't go past this one. It's another video. Now, this is an old one, but it popped up uh, in the feed, so I thought it was new, but it's still interesting. So it says, video. Humo, octopus terrifies Washington Elementary School, and this is from March 14, 2018. Students at an elementary school in Washington State were given quite the scare this week when the building's PA system was suddenly commandeered by an evil time-traveling human-octopus hybrid. The troubling event took place in the city of Woodland on Tuesday afternoon when out of the blue classes were interrupted by an unfamiliar voice broadcasting over the school's intercom system. Much to the horror of the children attending kindergarten through fourth grade at the school, they were then introduced to a Cthulhu-esque entity that will likely be making an appearance in their nightmares in the future, it would in mine. Booming over the PA system in a creepy voice was the unnerving warning. This is Humoctopus. I am speaking to you from the future. Run for your lives, wretched humans. I will smash you all. As if the message was not traumatic enough, The school subsequently went into a lockdown, okay, yeah, now, even as a child, now I would be going, whoa, is there something to this, and had the children hiding under their desks, no doubt hoping that the humoctopus would spare them from its wrath. While the adults in the building assured uh, assuredly knew that the entity was a work of fiction, it was all too real for some of the kids at the school, including one little girl who told her father that there's an octopus that's going to smash my eyes with a hammer. Lest one think that the creature was the work of perhaps a bored prankster working in the school's IT department, it turns out that the message was a genuine test recording from the company that created the Intercom Alert System. Honestly, I can laugh at this and I can find it humorous, but pretty poor choice for young children. If it was high schoolers, maybe it'd be a bit different. One can only wonder why, considering its intended audience, the company created such a haunting announcement that left the children in hysterics. The school ultimately issued a statement to parents explaining the situation and apologizing for subjecting the students to a gruff voice claiming to be the humoctopus from the future who proceeded to make threats against present-day humanity. We're guessing that the school administrators didn't expect to be writing those words when they woke up on a Tuesday morning. So again, folks, we've talked about it a lot on this episode, but life throws you curveballs. Life gets in the way. So yeah, definitely, I wouldn't think I would wake up and be writing that kind of apology letter, even hosting this show. So folks, I hope you've enjoyed these articles. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I will be back in the near future. I'm sorry, I can't tell you exactly when yet, but I'll be back in the near future with a new episode. I've got an interview that I'm editing now, and then the interviewee asked me to just please let him listen to it before I release it, so it might take a little bit longer than I planned, but that'll be out in the next week or two. And then also, Betty and Barney Hill, yes, it's important, but I've still got to write the script for episode three. And in the meanwhile, I've also got my interview with Timmy and Dave, where we're talking about the new year, and then I've still got to get the new year's episode with predictions and feedback on last year's predictions for you. So apologies, folks. I'll get all this to you as soon as I can. Have a great week. Stay safe. I can't remember what the J. Allen Hynek quote is right now, so we're just going to skip it. Take care. Much love. Stay safe out there, my friends, and I will talk to you as soon as I can.